Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Patrick McEwen might be one of the most knowledgeable and passionate experts in the world when it comes to all things breathwork, who I was first introduced to by our previous guest, James Nestor. Patrick's a graduate of Trinity College in Dublin, and in 2002, he completed his clinical training in the Buteyko breathing method at the Buteyko Clinic in Moscow, Russia. The training was accredited by the professor himself, Konstantin Buteyko. Having suffered from asthma, rhinitis, and sleep-disordered breathing for over 20 years, Patrick offers both theoretical knowledge and his own experiences to help people overcome similar challenges and is out with a must-read book about all things breathwork titled The Breathing Cure, Develop New Habits for a Healthier, Happier, and Longer Life. Patrick, welcome. Thanks very much, Jason. Good to be here. It's so great to have you all the way from Ireland via our mutual friend, James Nestor, who we've had on the podcast as well. So you have an incredible personal story with how changing your breath really had an incredible result with regards to your own health. So could you walk us through your personal story and how nasal breathing really had a profound impact on you? Yeah, it it pretty much changed my life. I was a kid growing up and a child growing up with asthma. And with asthma, you don't typically just have asthma, but you also have a stuffy nose. And if you have a stuffy nose, you're also more likely to have sleep problems. So from a number of perspectives, if there's children with asthma and they have breathing difficulties, it can affect their their ability to partake in physical exercise. But the biggest thing for me was my sleep. And I was waking up feeling tired every morning. And I was going into school and school kids are supposed to be able to concentrate and focus. And in secondary school, I was that's high school, I was falling asleep in the class. Now I was driven and I pushed myself to get through university. And I got my degree and it took a lot of work because if you don't have the focus to concentrate and hold your attention on the subject matter, you have to spend a lot of time studying. But I got it. Now it was in 1997, 98, I read a newspaper article about the work of a Russian doctor and he came, he discovered that it's very important in terms of breathing to breathe through your nose and to breathe light. So it's not just enough to breathe through your nose, but also to have light breathing. That much of the population overbreathe and breathe too much air. And overbreathing actually causes blood vessels to constrict and less oxygen to be delivered throughout the body. Now, because I had a stuffy nose, I was a mouth breather. And when you're a mouth breather, you typically breathe faster and upper chest breathing. So when you breathe through the mouth, there's less resistance to your breathing. So mouth breathing is invariably faster breath. But mouth breathing is also activating greater amplitude of the upper chest and less amplitude of the diaphragm. So it's not recruiting the main breathing muscle to the same extent. Now that puts the person into a fight or flight response. Because if you're breathing hard and fast all the time, the feedback from the body back to the brain. The brain is interpreting that the body is in a stressful situation, that it's not in a safe environment. And the brain then is signaling back to the body back on the basis of that. So I remember just after reading the article, I tried the nose unblocking exercise. And despite having a deviated septum, which I have, and I had an operation on my nose in 1994. And the interesting thing about having the operation on my nose is I went to ear, nose, and throat surgery. I had it. 
But after the surgery, even though the surgery was a success, nobody told me to breathe through my nose. And a couple of years ago, I was giving a talk to 150 ear, nose and throat doctors in Spain. And I spoke and I said, if you have patients going to you and they're undergoing nasal surgery, you're fixing the nose, but you're not necessarily changing the behavior. We have to change the behavior and we need to change the behavior both in children and also in adults. So my results were when I first switched from mouth to nose breathing, I did the nose and blocking exercise. I made a concerted effort to breathe only through my nose. I was feeling quite strong air hunger. And this was because I had developed the habit over the years of breathing too hard and too fast. And I stuck with it. And that night I taped my mouth closed, which I know it sounds kind of bizarre. And I wore breathe right strips across my nose. And the first morning I was kind of getting used to it, but it was the second morning I woke up and it was the best night's sleep I had in about 15 years. And this was something so remarkable that happened so quickly. And another couple of things that I noticed, I could bring increased temperature into my hands because I always had cold hands and cold feet. And that's very common with people with poor breathing patterns because our blood vessels are constricting due to the faster and harder breathing. My wheezing dropped or decreased by about 50% in that one week. Now that was despite having wheezing for many years. But Jason, I stayed, like my background was economics. I went to a university in Dublin. You don't spend four years training for one discipline. And I was in the corporate world. Now, albeit I was highly stressed in it, but it wasn't necessarily the corporate environment that was making me stressed. I was put in there physiologically in a state of fight or flight and also poor sleep. And that's why I feel there's something very important in the message that we need to be getting out to kids and teenagers and adults. Because if I was to say one trait that we need as human beings that we use throughout our life, and that trait is the ability to focus, and focus is narrowing your attention on one thing. Concentration is holding your attention on one thing. Attention span is the length of time that you're holding your attention on one thing. If we think of the child in school, society is demanding that these kids can concentrate and can hold their attention on that one thing. The university student, the same. The corporate office worker, the same. The person in sports, the same. The person in family life, the same. Society demands it, but nobody teaches us how. And I'm going to say this. Mindfulness does not work for the very group of people who need it the most. Because I can relate back to myself and also to thousands of people with dysfunctional breathing patterns. If you have poor sleep quality, you are not in a good state of mind. And if you have dysfunctional breathing, physiologically, you're in a state of fight or flight. And if we look at the statistics on dysfunctional breathing patterns, it affects 75% of the population with anxiety and panic disorder. It affects 30% of the asthma population and it affects approximately 20% of the normal population. But for children, it affects between 25 to 50% of the childhood population. They are mouth breathing, they are faster breathing, they are upper chest breathing, and the issue is it's being overlooked. It, it really is astonishing. Thank you for sharing that. As you said, breathing is fundamental. You breathe, you start breathing when you're born, think about it. We breathe approximately 25,000 times a day. 
And in the context of the conversation around wellness, we talk about food, we talk about exercise, we talk about all these things. We're talking about sleep more, but, and we're starting to talk about breath, but it's paramount. And going back to this idea and the science is starting to support it or does support it, it all comes back to, to nasal breathing. And so there, there are a couple of different directions we can go. So one, I'm going to come back to the highest level. And I think this is, is fascinating. We, we've got a lot of female listeners. We've got a lot of male listeners. Women breathe differently than men and vice versa. Correct. We're fundamentally different in, in yes. how we breathe and our needs. So let's go there. Mm, there's, a couple, there's a couple of things here. So one for women during menopause, that during the monthly cycle, post-ovulation, and this is during the middle luteal phase between days 10 and days 22, there's an increase in the hormones progesterone and also estrogen. And progesterone is a respiratory stimulant. So it's going to cause breathing to become faster and more likely upper chest for the female. Now, what can happen here is that carbon dioxide levels can drop by as much as 25%. And that's a huge drop in carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is not just this waste gas that everybody talks about. It's not just so simple that bring in oxygen and you get rid of the waste gas carbon dioxide. What happens when we lose carbon dioxide? It can affect our blood circulation. And as I explained earlier on, I had cold hands and cold feet. And that was due to get, getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. So not only that, but also in scientific terms, you have a left shift of what's called the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. When you lose too much carbon dioxide and blood pH increases, hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood, it doesn't release oxygen so readily. And I suppose people can relate to this in a very basic level. I remember going to do going into the exam hall at university and I was nervous going in. I always use this story because it was one that kind of stood out for me. I took a three minute walk before going into the exam hall. And during that three minutes, I took these full big breaths because I believed that if I was to get more blood flow and oxygen delivery to my brain, I should be breathing more air. This is going back 25 years ago. And I walked into that exam hall and I was totally spaced out and lightheaded. And you can imagine trying to focus and trying to do well in the exam and you're after altering your state there. So if we think of the female for those days between days 10 and days 22, carbon dioxide levels are dropping significantly. It can affect blood circulation. It can affect oxygen delivery. It arouses the central nervous system. Pain perception increases. Pain thresholds reduce. And it can contribute to panic and fatigue and anxiety. And many females will experience this, but not necessarily put it down to the change in their breathing as a result of changes in hormones. It's going to depend on females, depending on their genetics. It's also going to depend on the exposure, say, for example, trauma or stress or whatever that they've had in their life, or even females who talk a lot for a living, because talking can change your breathing. Stress levels can change your breathing. The belief that it's good to take big breaths can change your breathing. So all of these influences can change your breathing. But if you have a female with suboptimal breathing and then she's going through the middle luteal phase, she's going to have an even greater deterioration. 
So, for example, females with fibromyalgia, in some studies it showed that they can have a positive diagnosis for fibromyalgia during the luteal phase, that they would meet the diagnostic criteria in terms of pain, but they wouldn't meet it outside of that phase. And symptoms of PMS can be attributed to changes in in breathing as a result of changes in hormones. So that's one area that I think one could ask, well, why has this been overlooked? It has been overlooked because most research on breathing has been done by men. And even when research on breathing was done on women, most of the researchers failed to take into account the monthly cycle. And the second aspect of it is then is post-menopause. So if we were to look at obstructive sleep apnea, which is a really serious condition affecting the Western world, just to give you some statistics from a Swiss study, fairly recent, it affects 26% of men aged between 30 and 50 years of age, and 43% of men aged between 50 and 70 years of age, almost one in two men aged between 50 and 70. For females, it affects 9% of females aged between 30 and 50. But when the female goes post-menopause, goes through menopause, post-menopausal women's sleep disorder breathing increases 300%. So progesterone, it seems that progesterone is a protective hormone against poor sleep for younger females. And then post-menopause, so when the female is going through, say, 51 years of age, 52 up to maybe 55 years of age, her sleep then can be greatly impacted. And females who have increased obstructive sleep apnea, they're more prone to night sweats, to hot flashes, etc. So the symptoms of postmenopause can be also attributed and partly contributed to by poor sleep. Now, is there a connection then between how you breathe during the day and your sleep? Absolutely, there is. When doctors normally look at airway and they look at sleep, they only look at the pipe. We cannot just look at the pipe. We have to think of the airway. How would an engineer look at the pipe? The engineer is going to look at the diameter of the pipe, but not only will the engineer look at the diameter of the pipe, the engineer will look at flow. Flow is our breathing. And if you have an individual who is breathing hard and fast during the day, that person is going to breathe hard and fast during exercise, and that person is going to breathe hard and fast during sleep. And hard and fast breathing during sleep increases turbulence in the airway, contributes to, of course, snoring. And it also increases the negative pressure in the upper airway to contribute to collapse of the upper airway called obstructive sleep apnea. So when we have people coming in with obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia and snoring, it's very important to look at their breathing patterns and not just look at their breathing patterns from a biomechanical point of view. Breathing is deeper than what's just being taught. For example, and here is the issue with breathing. Breathing is generally taught according to tradition. And say, for example, if we were to look at a yoga instructor, that yoga instructor learns their breathing technique according to a tradition. And they will focus probably more on the biomechanics. With Buteyko, the tradition was focusing on the biochemistry and focusing on the biochemistry, but not taking into consideration so much the biomechanics. And if we were to look then at heart rate variability, these instructors are focusing primarily on the cadence breathing or resonance frequency breathing. But what it means is that 
within our own breathing instructors that people are focusing on their own dimension and they're not looking at all three. And this is where breathing should be explored. Breathing is not just about one dimension. Breathing is about breathing in and out through the nose. That's the way humans should breathe anyway. That's the way our ancestors were breathing. That's the way the animal kingdom should breathe. But the biochemistry is, it's based on carbon dioxide in the blood. And it's very important to have normal minute ventilation, that the volume of air that we breathe is normal because it's the volume of air that we breathe that determines CO2 in the lungs. And it's the CO2 in the lungs, carbon dioxide in the lungs, that determines CO2 in the blood. The second dimension is, of course, the connection between the nose and the diaphragm. If you breathe through the mouth, you typically activate the upper chest. Now, and I always say to my students, look down at your chest, take a breath through the mouth, and you'll see that mouth breathing is engaging the upper chest. The third dimension then, of course, is resonance frequency breathing. And this is where a lot of the science has come out over the last 30 years. And it's looking at heart rate variability, which would be an objective measurement of vagal tone. And the vagus nerve, which is wandering throughout the human body, we can stimulate that to secrete the neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which is causing a slowing of the heart and brings the body back into balance and into relaxation. So with breathing, we need to look at breathing in the bigger dimension and in the depth of it. And I think, and I know I'm talking a lot, but I think if people understood that, number one, you can actively influence your circulation through your breath. And even if people were just sitting at home and they're watching a little bit of television or something, put one hand on their chest, one hand just above their navel, and gently start slowing down the speed of their breathing to breathe a little bit less air. Just focusing on the airflow coming into the nose and having a really relaxed and a slow, gentle exhalation, and breathing a little bit less air so that they feel air hunger. And air hunger signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And with that, that also will stimulate the vagus nerve. You'll have increased watery saliva in the mouth, you'll feel drowsy and your hands get warmer. And if you wanted to go one step further, if somebody has a stuffy nose, once they're not pregnant or once they don't have any serious medical conditions, take a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch the nose and hold and gently walk up and down holding the breath and then let go but breathe in through the nose. So the main thing about breathing is for people to look into it that there is, it's a lot deeper than what often that they will imagine. And through the breath, we can influence all of the major disciplines of medicine, respiration, sleep, mental health, posture, dentistry, epilepsy, diabetes. So there's so much to it. And that's why I think it needs attention. So there's a lot to unpack there. And so much of it comes back to, to nasal breathing but more specifically, you mentioned the buteco. Am I pronouncing yes. it right? The buteco yeah. breathing technique. So can you walk us through that technique and explain it? Because it, it's not just nasal breathing, I, I, the way I think about it, nasal breathing is a huge first step. And mm-hmm. if you just can make the switch to nasal breathing, you're going to have tremendous results and a profound mm-hmm. impact on your health and well-being. But you also talk about the buteco breathing technique, which is a little bit more specific. So can you walk us through that technique? Sure. The Buteyko method is focused primarily on the biochemistry. And Dr. Buteyko's observation back in the 1950s was that sick people breathe hard. 
And so he noticed people who were getting sick. And we'll kind of see this anyway. If you were to talk to a nurse in a hospital and ask the nurse, how do the patients breed when, when their health is getting, when their health is deteriorating? And the patient will typically breed faster. They're breathing more upper chest. They're caught for breath. So Buteco asked a question. He said, was it their sickness which was causing their hard breathing? Or was it their hard breathing which is feeding into their sickness? And one way maybe to relate to this would be people who are exposed to long-term chronic stress. It can often make them sick. And what is long-term chronic stress doing in terms of our breathing? But it is changing our breathing that our breathing becomes faster and harder. Now, what's happening when we breathe too much air? We need a certain pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. It's 40 millimeters of mercury. And carbon dioxide in the blood doesn't tend to deviate outside of about three millimeters of mercury. So, but if we are in a habit of breathing a little bit harder and a little bit faster, we remove too much carbon dioxide from the lungs. And this in turn then is going to remove carbon dioxide from the blood. And with this, then it can affect our blood circulation it can affect oxygen delivery, which is based on the Bohr effect. And this is not new. Like the Bohr effect was discovered back in 1904 by a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr. And he, he wrote at that time that it's the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood, which is a catalyst for the release of oxygen from the red blood cells. So you can imagine as human beings, we take a breath of fresh air into our lungs and that oxygen is passing from the lungs into the blood and it's carried in the blood by hemoglobin. 98% of oxygen is carried bound by hemoglobin. So in terms of the biochemistry, the biochemistry is focusing on minute ventilation. And minute ventilation is the number of breaths that you breathe per minute by the tidal volume, which is the size of each breath. So when we think of human beings breathing, it's not just enough to focus on the respiratory rate, or it's not enough to focus on the tidal volume. We have to think of the amount or the volume of air that the person is breathing per minute. And very often with breathing, the emphasis is on focusing on the respiratory rate, but the tidal volume is being overlooked. Normal minute ventilation is between four and six litres of air per minute. And if, if for example, we have a habit of over-breathing, we can be breathing 10 to 15 litres of air per minute. And that is a habit that we're breathing too hard and too fast every minute, every hour, every day. So, for example, if we were to look at respiratory rate, a normal respiratory rate is between 10 and 14 breaths per minute. But if somebody, it's very common for people to be breathing more than 16 breaths per minute. That is too fast. And if I look at the people coming in with anxiety and panic disorder, very often we will see faster and harder breathing. Now, even if I was just to isolate anxiety and panic, the faster and harder breathing, this person has a stronger sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide. And I don't want to kind of drown, go into too much detail, but carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. So every breath that we take into our body is driven by carbon dioxide. But if we are overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the blood, our breathing is going to be hard and fast. So it's our sensitivity to the gas CO2 that determines the volume of air that we are breathing. And if we have a strong sensitivity to carbon dioxide, we have hard and fast breathing, but also 
that person who has got hard and fast breathing will often feel that they are not getting enough air. Their breathing is, because it's faster and harder, it's causing agitation of the mind. Their faster and harder breathing is causing blood vessels to constrict. It can also contribute to airway narrowing, including the nose getting blocked, and even an asthma, even though it's not the full picture. But the constriction of the airways can happen as well from the loss of CO2. In people, for example, who are prone to epilepsy, So, for example, if a person is prone to epilepsy and some forms of epilepsy, harder and faster breathing is reducing blood flow to the brain. This, in turn, then, is lowering the nerve cell or the neuron excitability threshold in the brain cells and can contribute to epileptic seizures. So, And this harder and faster breathing, then, is also going to put the body more likely into a fight-or-flight response, increased sympathetic drive, and reduced parasympathetic drive. So there's so many things that are affected by it. Sleep medicine has changed in the last seven years, and there's a recognition that there is a phenotype called loop gain in sleep apnea, and this affects 30% of the population with, with sleep apnea. Now, what this means is that if they have high loop gain, that when the person stops breathing during sleep, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood, but if they're overly sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide, when they resume breathing with such exaggerated ventilation that it blows off too much carbon dioxide and then the brain doesn't send a signal to bring on a central apnea, but also when the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe, the output from the brain to the upper airway dilator muscles is reduced as well. Like there's really so much going on. So coming back to the, the question, Buteco said two things, breathe through your nose and breathe less air. And this flies in the face of often what we've been told. But if you were to look at original yoga and one book by a yoga instructor called Robin Rottenberg called Restoring Prana, she researched what original yoga, how was it defined in terms of breathing? And the word that was used was subtle. But subtle and light breathing mean the same thing. It wasn't about hard breaths. Now, there is a time if you want to stress the body to breathe hard. But most of the time, we should be breathing light. And if you look at people who are sick, they breathe hard. And hard breathing is not a good sign of health. So it's fascinating. And I have a two-part question is, how do we know and and what do we do? So I'm going to go to the how do we know. So I've got my aura, I've got my Fitbit, and I've got my whoop. So I happen to track heart rate variability and respiratory rate. Yes. And is there a, you mentioned above, I think it was 10 to 14 for respiratory rate. Is it, in your opinion, does everyone have a different, is it about having a different baseline? Is it better to be consistent? So like me, for example, my respiratory rate tends to be in the the 14 to 14 and a half, like straight line all the time. Like, and I rarely go up or down. It's just Mm -hmm. like straight line. Does that mean that my heart rate variability is usually pretty good? It's it's higher in the range. I'll tell you what it is right now. It is, what are we? 97. That's good. So with that said, with regards, we'll start with respiratory rate, because this also comes back to COVID because whoop, specifically had, a, had this great data of, of respiratory rate being a you know, 
determining whether or not you were going to have, it was an early sign of, of COVID. Your yeah. respiratory rate would go through the roof or once people got the vaccination, same thing. You see that bump and then come back down. So so is it about having a baseline or is there a certain number? So like use me as an example, is my baseline just 14 or am I breathing too hard and fast? So I need to try to bring it down. Yeah, normally we don't necessarily look at, in terms of the respiratory rate, it's not the only thing that we look at. And we typically use a breath hold time as an indicator of functional breathing patterns. So the control pause from the Buteco method is the person is sitting down for about three to five minutes. They have sets, they allow their breathing to settle. And then they take a normal breath in and out through the nose and pinch the nose and hold. And they time it in seconds until they feel the first definite desire to breathe. And then they let go and they breathe through their nose. And this was put to the test by a physical therapist called Kyle Kiesel from Evansville University in 2018. He looked at 51 individuals with an average age of 27 years of age, and he looked at their breathing from biochemical, biomechanical, and psychophysiological dimensions. And his conclusion was that if your breath hold time, the control pause, or it's the bolt score from the oxygen advantage, if it's above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that this functional breathing is not present. So if you have a person with a bolt score of about 20, a person with a control pause of about 25 seconds, they typically will have a normal respiratory rate. And we're talking about 10 to 14 breaths per minute. And if they have a bolt score of 30 to 35 seconds, they'll typically have a respiratory rate between maybe eight and 10 breaths per minute. So the breath hold time is a very good, it's not a perfect indicator, but it's a very good indicator to screen for dysfunctional breathing. Now, we've seen people with long COVID and their breath hold time, three seconds. These wow. people cannot even talk. This is a big deal because I think everyone listening has to say, all right, I'm going to try this exercise at home just yes. to get a sense of my baseline and how am I doing with regards to my 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 breath. So can you walk us through that again? So it's your sure. breathing what so do we do? Every, everyone's got their pen and papers out right now, their iPhone, they're taking notes. So let's just walk through it again. So you're sitting down for a few minutes, just allowing your breathing just to settle. And you're just having normal breathing. So don't change your breathing prior to the measurement. And you just take a normal breath in through your nose and a normal breath out through your nose. And you pinch your nose with your fingers and you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe are the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles and then to let go, but to breathe in and out through your nose and your breath at the end should be fairly normal. So we're looking at a really optimal control pause is 40 seconds, but the minimum that we should be looking towards is 25 seconds. So you're, you're doing regular nasal breathing for a couple of minutes. And then at yes. one point you decide to cover your nose and you see exhale, how long you can hold. But no, but exhale first, always exhale. So take so, a normal breath in through your nose yeah. and a normal breath out through your nose and then pinch your nose. And then see and how then long you hold your breath. Only until you feel the first stresses to breathe or the first involuntary movement of the breathing muscles. In other words, if you think of it this way, if you stopped breathing, at some point, your brain is going to say breathe. So it's the length of time after an exhalation. How long does it take for the brain to react to the fact that you've stopped breathing? So it's a physiological measurement. And yeah, it's, it's a good indicator. And 25 seconds is amazing. Is, is, very is a minimum. Good. Is a minimum. No, it's oh, a minimum. Wow. Yeah. So if you're above 25 seconds, 
you're in good state in terms of functional breathing. But if you're below 25 seconds, more likely to be dysfunctional breathing. And especially if somebody has a, a bolt score or a control pause of 10 seconds or 15 seconds even. Okay, so how do we strengthen? So number one is nasal breathing, both during wakefulness and also during physical exercise and during sleep. And people might be surprised to hear, why should we breathe through the nose during physical exercise? Well, number one, the mouth does nothing in terms of breathing. So if you were to ask, give me one function that the mouth does to the breath on the way into the lungs, and it has no function. The mouth is simply a hole. Air comes straight in through the mouth, down the throat, unconditioned, unfiltered, not moistened, cold air, not harnessing nasal nitric oxide, activating the upper chest. Back in 1988, researchers noted that when individuals post-jaw surgery, when their jaws were wired shut and they were forced to continuously breathe through their nose, the pressure of oxygen in the blood increased by 10, 10%. Now, if we go for a run and do physical exercise with the mouth closed, it is tougher initially. And it's more difficult because the nose is a smaller entry for air to come into than the the mouth into the body than the mouth. And as a result, carbon dioxide is not able to leave the blood so quickly through the nose. So when you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, your muscles are generating carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood because it cannot leave the body so quickly. And as carbon dioxide increases, you feel an increased air hunger. But what does higher carbon dioxide do to your blood circulation? it dilates it. What does higher carbon dioxide do to the release of oxygen from the red blood cells to the working muscles? It causes more oxygen to be released to the working muscles. And if you continue doing physical exercise for about four to six weeks, with your mouth closed, the air hunger diminishes. And now your body has adopted to tolerating a higher pressure of carbon dioxide and you have less breathlessness during physical exercise. Now, how sports scientists have overlooked this one is absolutely beyond me, but one sports scientist hasn't, and his name is George Dallam, and he's from Colorado State University, but he works with top-level triathletes in the United States, and he was intrigued with nasal breathing. In 2018, he got 10 recreational athletes, And he said to them, I want you to breathe exclusively through your nose for the next six months during all physical exercise, and then I'm going to test you. And when he measured them six months afterwards, they were able to achieve 100% of their work rate intensity breathing through their nose as versus breathing through their mouth. But they had 22% less ventilation. So they had 22% less breathlessness. And this, I suppose, is important because there's an energy cost associated with breathing. As we speak or sit here, about 2 to 3% of our oxygen consumption is going to support the breathing muscles. And if you go for a walk, it might be 5 or 6%. If you go for a jog or a fast jog, it could be 8 or 10%. And if you do fairly high-intense exercises, about 14 15%. So there is an energy cost associated with breathing. And if we think of an elite athlete... An elite athlete can be breathing 50 breaths per minute and each breath can be as high as three liters. So they could be breathing 150 liters of air per minute. Now that is an energy cost. 
And what we're looking to do is, there's a few ways to do it. Number one, improve tolerance to carbon dioxide. And as a result, then you have less breathlessness during physical exercise. Or conversely, if you have an individual with dysfunctional breathing patterns, even if that person is an elite athlete, that person is more likely to have disproportionate breathlessness during exercise. They're more likely to gas out too soon because it's not your breathing during exercise that's the problem, but it's your breathing outside of your exercise. It's your breathing during sleep. It's your breathing during rest. So coming back to your question, to increase and improve your ability to hold your breath. Number one, nose breathe all the time. Number two, do all of your physical exercise with the mouth closed. Number three, if you are healthy and you're not pregnant and you've got no serious medical conditions, do some breath holds. And this could be, for example, you take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold. And then you start walking with the breath hold, go into a jog, you go into a fast jog with the breath hold and keep going until the air hunger is quite strong and then to let go, but to get your breathing under control. And what that can do as well is it's increasing carbon dioxide in the blood and it can help to reduce your sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide. So that's something we use a lot with athletes, but it does more than that. It will open up the nose. It will open up the lungs. It will increase blood flow to the brain. And it will also cause the spleen to contract. And the spleen is our blood bank. It contains about 8% of our red blood cells. So when you do a long breath hold, the spleen will release red blood cells into circulation. And this is why we have athletes do it before they go out into a game. Because it takes about 10 to 60 minutes for the spleen to reabsorb that blood back. So we have a second test for athletes, and that's called the maximum breathlessness test. And that's when they take a normal breath in and out through the nose, pinch the nose and hold. And we count how many paces can they hold their breath for to a maximum. And you're looking that they can achieve a minimum of 60 paces and maximum will be 80 to 100 paces. So that's one aspect. Now, I just do the last part of your question. We also have the breathe light exercise, and this is where individuals are sitting down, that they deliberately slow down their breathing to create air hunger, not by stressing the body, but just by focusing the airflow in and out of their nose and really slowing down the speed of the air coming in to the nose and out of the nose to breathe less air. And by breathing less air, carbon dioxide increases in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, it can also help to reduce the body's sensitivity to carbon dioxide. So that's kind of a few ideas. So in terms of measurement, I, I come back to respiratory rate because people like to know if they're you know, having success in real time. Would yes. the goal for those who wear wearables have your respiratory rate number start to decrease? Is that a... Yes, yes, it would. But again, if you're in around four, 10 to 14 breaths per minute, you're doing pretty good anyway. Okay. And if you, it's like the the respiratory rate is very important, even in terms of this, every breath that we take into the body, not all of that air gets down into the small air sacs in the lungs. So say, for example, you have somebody who is, we'll use an example with COVID and they're taking 20 breaths per minute. The respiratory rate is too fast. And we'll say that they're breathing shallow. 
their tidal volume is 300 mil. So their minute ventilation is six liters. They're taking six liters of air into their body. But of that, how much of that air is getting down into the small air sacs in the lungs? To find that out, we need to subtract dead space. We need to subtract the air that stays in the nasal cavity, in the throat, in the trachea, bronchi. So in that example there, the person is breathing 20 breaths per minute. They're feeling suffocated because their breathing is labored. They're breathing shallow, 300 mil. And if we subtract dead space of 150, it means that they are only taking three liters of that six liters down into the small air sacs in the lungs. So here you have a person who needs air the most and they are wasting 50% of their air because their respiratory rate is too fast. Now, if we had that person slow down their breathing from 20 breaths down to say 12 breaths and the tidal volume to increase to 500 mil, they're still breathing six liters of air. But when we subtract dead space, they're now taking 4.2 liters into the small air sacs in the lungs. And if you went one step further down to six breaths per minute and the tidal volume to be a thousand mil, one liter, still six liters, but now alveolar ventilation is increasing to 5.1 liters. So there's the economics of it as well. So on one hand, it's about efficiency. I'll give you this example. Imagine somebody walking up a flight of stairs. They're only walking up a flight of stairs, but they are so breathless. That's inefficient because for a given amount of air, they're not able to do a whole lot with it. And if you had an elite athlete, they would be able to run with the same volume of breathing. But we train that breathing efficiency, which is influenced by chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. But it's one hand, we want to improve breathing efficiency. But on the other hand, we want to improve the economics. We don't want to be wasting air because the person has that faster and upper chest breathing. So just a couple of ideas. Like, I'm not one for saying that keep on reducing the respiratory rate down to eight breaths, down to six breaths. No, normal is four, 10 to 14 breaths per minute. But we also know from the research with heart rate variability that there are a number of ways of increasing HRV. Number one, nasal breathing during sleep will improve heart rate variability, and that can be tracked using the aura ring. If an individual has their mouth open during sleep, they're more likely to be in sleep arousal and more likely to be in that sympathetic activation because of res resistance to their breathing. Number two, breathing light by breathing less air, breathing slow and light with less air, that increases HRV. Number three, breathing low with greater amplitude of the diaphragm will increase HRV and breathing. And number four, breathing slow to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute increases HRV. So there's a number of ways to improve heart rate variability and the breath is a number of ways to do it. And of course, there's other aspects, humming and gargling and things like that as well. Well, I go back to the, the why. I think it's important to reiterate for our listeners. So I will. It's not just about having a great score and your wearable. If, if, if you wear a wearable, we started the show, you talk about the, the connection between breathing properly and mood, attention, concentration, alleviating yes. anxiety, better sleep. Like th these are, there are some big time health benefits that all yes. start with breathing properly. And so, 
there's a lot of, this is such an exciting field. There's a lot of emerging science. Can you walk us through some of that, some science that's taking place right now that which you're excited about? Yeah, it's one doctor, Dr. Christian Gimelow, and he, he sadly passed on about a year ago. But the last five years of his life, he was, and this doctor is accredited with coining the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. So he's considered to be the founding father or one of the founding fathers of sleep medicine. He also developed the apnea hypopnea index. And for the last five years of his life, he spoke about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing during sleep. And I remember him, I spoke alongside him at a number of conferences. And I remember one conference in particular in Bordeaux in France, and he stood up and it was a room packed full of healthcare professionals. And he stood up in the middle of the room and he said that you were talking about everything in sleep except the elephant in the room. He said the elephant in the room is breathing through the nose. Now, if you look on Amazon and if you buy 10 books on breathing, sorry, 10 books on sleep, I will bet that hardly any of those books will even include one sentence on the importance of nasal breathing. I'll give you some recent paper that was published in larger scope. 95 individuals, I spoke about this earlier on. They looked at the stats of people who were mouth breathing. Now, these were young people, 45 to 51 years of age. The AHI with the mouth breathing group only was 52 events per hour. In other words, they either had an apnea whereby they stopped breathing for more than 10 seconds, or they had a hypopnea where there was a reduction in the flow for more than 10 seconds. They had 52 arousals per hour of sleep. The nose mouth breathing group had 47 arousals per hour, and the nasal breathing group alone had 27 arousals per hour. In other words, the mouth breathing group had double, double the AHI, the severity of the nasal breathing group. Now, the nasal breathing group still have fairly high significant AHI, but even just getting the mouth closed, because when the mouth is closed, the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, and with the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, it helps to open up the architecture of the airway. Nose breathing also is allowing moisture to come into the airways to protect the upper airways. And this has many applications for people who are singing, people who are talking, Because if we have, it's not that people go around with their mouth open 100% of the time. No, that rarely happens. So people will generally probably have their mouth closed when they're at rest, maybe not when they're distracted. But when they do physical exercise, their mouth is open. When they are asleep, 50% of the adult population, mouth is open. So there's eight hours whereby there's cold, dry air coming into the airways, traumatizing the upper airway. And I often say to my students, I'm focusing on sleep because I think sleep is really the foundation of health. And just to give you this example, I had somebody coming in with depression about 10 years ago. And I asked her, I said, when you wake up in the morning, I asked her, how do you feel? And she said, I wake up and I feel absolutely exhausted. And I said to her, has anybody ever asked you about your sleep quality? And she said, no. And here was a person going to doctors over many years with depression. And the doctor knew she was feeling exhausted, but nobody asked, was it the depression which caused the exhaustion or was it the exhaustion which was feeding into the depression? And we know when insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea go together, 
that mental health, including depression, is increased risk. So coming back to sleep, nose breathing, light breathing, slow breathing, low breathing is vitally important. Even just snoring. Like I'll say to my students, make the sound of a snore through the mouth. And they go like this. And then I'll say, close your mouth and try and snore through your mouth. You can't. Now I say, make the sound of a snore through your nose. And it goes like this. And now really slow down the speed of the air coming in and out of your nose. And when you breathe slowly in and out of your nose, try and snore. And you will see it's more difficult. So when we're talking about snoring, that also is is influenced by breathing flow. But let's look at insomnia. So insomnia can be somebody finds it difficult to fall asleep or they have four hours of sleep or five hours of sleep and then they wake up. And that can be the most challenging because if you wake up after four or five hours of sleep, you're not quite tired enough to fall back asleep, but you're not quite awake enough to get up. What would cause you to wake up after four or five hours of sleep? One is mouth breathing and number two is fast breathing. So if we think of the population with anxiety and asthma, especially that population, and of course people with obesity, because females who are obese, more so than men, and this is another difference between men and women's breathing, females who are obese have an increased sensitivity to carbon dioxide. And if you were to look at an obese person, you'll typically see that you can really notice them breathing. So if we are breathing hard and fast during sleep, the brain arouses us from sleep. That's insomnia. And the reason that the brain arouses us from sleep is because the brain is interpreting that the body is in an unsafe environment and takes that person out of that sleep. But this is a vicious circle because if you're waking up feeling tired in the morning, so when how we breathe is going to impact our sleep, how we sleep impacts our breathing. How we sleep, if we have poor sleep, it's going to impact the mind because we're going to feel groggy. We're not in a good mood. But if we have a racing mind, we cannot sleep so readily. So we need to be able to turn switch off. And that's where slow breathing and light breathing before sleep can be helpful. And also, if we have an agitated mind, it impacts our breathing. We breathe faster and harder. But if we have an everyday breathing habit of breathing faster and harder, that's agitating the mind. So we cannot look at the function of breathing in isolation to sleep and to the emotions. And the, the great takeaway is use some tape. You actually have tape. I bought your tape. Yes. You, you oh, got you? your own special tape. I did. I yes. bought it. But you could use your tape or any tape. It's yes. If you think about it this way, you know, your sleep, hopefully your sleep for 33% of the day and just taping your mouth can have a profound impact. You don't have to do anything. Yes. Just tape it and go to bed. Yes. No exercise, no vegetables. You just... <laughs> required. Yes. So I, I want to close with kids. Many of our listeners have kids. We have two little kids. Why is it so critical for kids to learn how to breathe correctly? And how do we go about doing that with them? It's absolutely vital. I would say that no child is going to reach their full inherited potential unless they breathe through their nose. And I don't think I'm exaggerating that. I'll give you an example of a study that was con conducted in Stratford-upon-Avon in the UK. 
and it was published in the journal Pediatrics in 2012. One of the researchers is Karen Bonnock, B-O-N-U-C-K. She looked at 11,000 children over an eight-year period, and children with sleep disorder breathing, including snoring. These children, if untreated by age five, they had 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. I've been at conferences with doctors standing up and saying that there's no such thing as ADHD. The problem is poor sleep. And then if we talk to experts in orthodontistry, and they will tell you, Dr. William Hank, for example, in Agoury Hills in California, Dr. Kevin Boyd, there's Mark Moeller, Joy um, Moeller, Samantha Weaver. And there are so many people in this space that realize children who are mouth breathing causes craniofacial abnormalities. And the craniofacial abnormalities are because if the mouth is open, the tongue isn't resting in the roof of the mouth. The development of the face, and especially the top jaw, is influenced by the position of the tongue. And when the mouth is closed and the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, it's the pressures exerted by the tongue which develop the maxilla. When the maxilla, the maxilla should be the shape of the tongue. The tongue is U and wide-shaped. And when the maxilla is U and wide-shaped, there's no overcrowding of teeth. If we think of children nowadays, at least 75% of them need orthodontic treatment. That's not because their teeth are too big. It's because their jaws are too small. And the problem with the jaws being too small, that there's not enough room for the tongue. And when there's not enough room for the tongue, the tongue is going to encroach on the airway. So if we want to look at, and if healthcare wants to really address sleep disorder breathing, we need to be doing it when a child is three and four and five years of age. And we need to be getting that child with the mouth closed. Now, there are other factors. Tongue tie can be a contributory factor. And if the child has a tongue tie, child isn't able to breastfeed. And breastfeeding isn't just about nutrition for the baby, but it's also about manipulation of the muscles of the face necessary for craniofacial growth. The food that kids are eating, that can play a role. So, Jason, it comes down that the human face is changing. It's becoming smaller. The airway is getting smaller. And that is going to impact sleep. And some of the same methods for improving breath, you can use tape with kids, right? We use them. Well, we only use the myotape. And that's not. Yeah. And the only reason being is because it surrounds the mouth to bring the lips together. A few years ago, I put all of the children's exercises. They're completely free of charge anyway. They're out on, online. So if, rings, if any of the listeners have a child with a stuffy nose, they can sit the child down in front of the computer and just watch the exercise to unblock the nose. And then there's the steps exercise. So our entire children's program is completely out there for free. You don't, we don't need emails, nothing like that. It's out there. We'll put that in the show notes. Please share it. Patrick, thank you so much. So important. Now's the time to focus on breath more than ever. And thank you for all the incredible work you're doing. Thanks very much, Jason.